Well, brothers and sisters, we are uh, continuing through our series this morning, and as I shared last week and has been shared uh, even before at the start of the series by Pastor Eric through the bulk of this year, that we are going through a series called Identity in Christ, in which we are exploring who we are in Jesus Christ, and really, as much as we can, um, putting our identity, making sure that how we see ourselves, how we define ourselves, really is rooted in Jesus Christ. And so we have been, uh, for the past few weeks, kind of exploring how it is that we are um, children, who we are in Jesus Christ. And so, remember, last week I shared as to why this is so important. And that is, either way, either we are going to be defined by someone or something else, or we can allow ourselves to be defined by him who created us and who knows us better than not only we know ourselves, but certainly better than anyone else knows us. Amen? And so it's important that we understand and really begin to root ourselves into who we are in Jesus Christ, not only for that reason, but also because what defines us is what we tend to worship. What defines us is what we tend to worship. Or another way of saying that is whatever gives us worth, we worship. Whatever gives us worth, we worship. And so this morning we are continuing through that. Um, And this morning I titled today's message, I Am God's Temple. And I want to start off the message this morning by making a statement. And maybe it's more of an observation, more than anything else. And the observation is this. Um, I have observed and or I believe that we as human beings in general tend to be attracted to strong personalities. And what I mean by that is personalities that are, that are you know, magnetic, that, that, that are just loud, if you will, that are, that are perceived to be um, just this enthusiastic, magnetic kind of personalities that we tend to gravitate towards. We tend to gravitate towards people who oftentimes are kind of the loudest or or perceived to be the most intelligent or perceived to be the ones who kind of know what's going on or perceived to be the ones who are really good looking, that sort of thing. We tend to possibly gravitate more to those individuals than we do to most anybody else. As a, as a kind of for me, I love kind of history and I love political history. And one of the things I was reminded of was in the turn of the century, that is the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt became president of the United States after the president, William McKinley, was shot and assassinated. And, and Theodore, or, or Teddy Kennedy came into office. By the way, Theodore Kennedy was put in the vice presidency because the, the, the people had to figure out those in power wanted to kind of quiet this guy. They knew this guy could be dangerous. And they put him in the vice presidency because back then, as much as much today, the vice presidency, vice presidency isn't really much to, to aspire towards. It just, it just isn't. You're just kind of in the background. You're just kind of there just in case the main guy dies. Right? And, um, and, and so Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt was this guy that he, was, he just owned the room. He had this unbelievable personality. In this past week, I, someone had posted the marriage certificate of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a distant cousin of Teddy Roosevelt, and Eleanor Roosevelt, 
who was the niece of Teddy Roosevelt. Are you, are you staying with me, right? And Teddy Roosevelt was one of the witnesses at the wedding. What you may not know is that at the wedding, he was president when FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt got married. And he owned the room. He couldn't even let them shine as it was their day. He was just as talkative and as energetic and as bombastic as ever. And there's a story that he was just owning the room of all the guests there. And poor Eleanor and FDR are in a room by themselves. He just owned the room, right? There's also another story in which he invited an author of a book um, who he, that he really enjoyed the subject on, and the author comes to the White House, goes in and meets with Teddy Roosevelt, and about an hour or so later, he comes out, and he is just absolutely drained and exhausted. And, and the secretary to Teddy Roosevelt realizes this and said, oh my word, what did you say to him? And the, and the author replied, I, I said my name. And then for that whole time, Teddy Roosevelt just dominated the conversation. I say that because I think as humans, we tend to acquiesce to more stronger personalities, to more people who tend to have a magnetic personality. We tend to acquiesce to them. We tend to kind of go along with them, or we tend to just remain kind of quiet. Think about it in a work situation or a work environment or even more in a family environment. You know that per particular person who when they come to the family gatherings, whatever they might be, that they kind of tend to dominate the conversation. No one else can get a word in edgewise, right? They just kind of own the room. They just dominate everything. And you just go along with it, right? Or for the most part, we go along with it. And that is interesting in terms of human behavior. Now, I mention that because I think that in doing this, that oftentimes we may tie ourselves to a personality or more than that, to a person specifically, is that we oftentimes, as a result, run the risk of letting that personality, or even more so, that person define who we are. That is absolutely true at a national level, right? We elect our leaders, particularly the President of the United States, who serves a dual function, the head of government, and the head of state. Okay, That means not only do they head the government, but they also are the representative of who we are to the rest of the world. That's, that's their dual role. England split it up, right? You've got the prime minister, who's the head of government, but then you have the queen, who's the head of state. She's the one who goes around and tells everyone, this is who the people of England are. Yeah, you're not much better than the rest of us, apparently. We all have faults, right? And so this is really important. And so we allow ourselves to be defined by those oftentimes who have the biggest personalities, who are the ones who kind of display kind of leadership characteristics. We oftentimes run the risk and oftentimes just simply let them define who we are. Now, in case you might still be doubting me on this, this is again just an observation. This isn't, this isn't Bible. This is just my observation. Um, think about this. How many of us um, have been told at one time or another that, man, you have the personality of your mom or you have the personality of your dad? Right? How many of us are not wanting to admit that? Right? Yeah. I mean, but, but we can't escape it. It's it, it, almost as we have been defined by that. 
oh my word, you have the personality of so-and-so. Oh my word. You know, it's, it's just fascinating. We oftentimes are defined and let ourselves be defined by the personality or even other people in general. Now, here's the thing. What is true at a national level, what is true even at a family level, is what I also think is true in the church. That oftentimes we can let ourselves be defined by the most dominant personalities or person in the room. Which, by the way, in case you don't know who that is right now, it's me. Okay? Right now. All right? How many of you, let me, give you, let me just throw this question out, and, I'm, and this may fail miserably. How many of you have at one time or another, when talking about memes, said Mimi? Or Emojoys? Good. Fantastic. It didn't fail. I haven't done my work yet. I will get you to say Mimis and Emojoys, right? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. That sometimes we even may carry on the language of those in our church because that's how much we are defined or formed by a particular person, personality, or people in general. In other words, it happens here. It happens here. But the problem with that is, is that we know that shouldn't be the case. We know that should not be the case. Here's the, here's the thing, is that all of a sudden now, is that we have in this country, and I can only speak to this country, and I can only speak to evangelical Christianity because that's the world I swim in, okay? That's the world we swim in. That over the past several years, and this has been going on for years and years and years, but particularly in the past several years, it has just seemed to have just been going on much more frequently, is that we have seen what can happen when we pin our identity on a personality or a person in the church and that personality or that person fails, whether morally, ethically, or otherwise. And we see what can happen when all of a sudden that happens, how that person or persons in those churches, that their faith is ruined and the church is fractured. Do you know what I'm talking about? This has real consequences if we allow this to happen. So today, my hope is this. This is what I want to have hope today. It's real simple goal, brothers and sisters. Here's my goal. I want you to stop following me. That's what I want you to do. If you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this. Stop following me. Okay? Follow Jesus. That's what I want you to do. I want you to stop following me. And I want you to follow Jesus instead. And here's the thing. If I have done my job, at the end of the day, I hope you will follow Jesus. Truly. Truly. My son said something very convicting to me this morning. He didn't realize he said it convictingly to me. But it's it just like, oh, that's right. Um, he, he was here cleaning the church this morning. I'm here working on a sermon. You know, father-son father, time. He's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. He comes into my office. And, uh, and, and I said, well, son, do you want to, you know, you can give the message. He says, oh, no, I don't want to give the message at all. I don't want to do that at all. And I said, really? You're really good at public speaking, son. You can do this. He says, oh, no, I don't want to have to give an account. Yeah. He's right. <laughs> 
What happens up here, y'all? Yeah, y'all. Intentional. Um, every single person who stands behind this podium or otherwise and preaches from this book, the Bible, has to give an account to what they said to all of you. Because whether or not you realize in this moment, I am hopefully speaking on behalf of Jesus himself. Therefore, the words that I share carry a weight that is, without the Holy Spirit, unbearable. Unbearable. I, I, I am absolutely just enthralled with people who just want to get up and preach and are just excited to do it and they can't wait to get behind the pulpit and they're usually young people who are just like, give me that Bible, give me that chance, I will do it, I will preach that word and I love that enthusiasm. But I also want to pull them aside and say, you do realize when you stand up here, yeah, you are taking on a burden that at the end of your life, you will stand before the throne in heaven with God sitting on it, and you will give an account to how did, well did you speak of him to everyone that he put under your charge. How many of you want to preach? <laughs> Eric still does. Amen. <laughs> right? If I haven't talked you out of it yet, uh, I'm going to try my best because you, you have to... You have to, I think we have to be careful why we want to be up here. If it's up here because I get to speak, that's wrong. There are some people who just have to say something, and then there are people who have something to say. Amen? And I hope I am one of those who has something to say and just not want to be up here just to say something. So this responsibility, no wonder Wheezy is just like, no, Dan, you take it. <laughs> Here, you can have a Sunday. You can have a Sunday, you know? Um, yeah, I get it. And by the way, this message I want to share with you today was a really hard message. I'm starting to grade my messages on the amount of time I have to spend at coffee shops and the number of coffee shops even in one day. Yesterday was a two-day or two-coffee shop visit. And I still didn't have this message down. I even sent Dennis the sermon notes, and Dennis even looked at him and says, oh, no, this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't it. And sure enough, a few minutes later, I said, okay, Dennis, I think it finally hit me. Here. Okay, now this looks more like it. I'm telling you this today because it's just full disclosure, y'all. Um, this is a hard message because I'm trying to talk you out of not following me, or Eric, or Wheezy, or any other pastor or personality who might be up here. Do not let me define you. Do you hear what I'm saying? And do not pin your faith on me. I will fail you as surely as the sun sets and rises. Count on it. And by the way, if you're here thinking, oh, Dan, you, have, oh, you can never fail us. One of two things. Either you haven't realized I failed you or you're brand new. <laughs> Give it time. Okay? It's going to happen. But here's the thing, what can we do? Because the evangelical church, I believe, is in many ways personality-driven, right? Personality-driven. How many of us define the church that we go to, not by the name of the church, by the pastor who preaches there? I go to so-and-so's church rather than I go to name the church. I mean, it's, it, 
that, that may be a sign of personality drivenness, and it can be incredibly dangerous. So what can we do to undo this? What can we do to reverse this? What can we do to make sure, if you will, that we do not pin our hopes, our faith on a personality or a person? Well, today the passage I want us to look at, I think, gives us some ways in which we can undo this. And it's not the only way. It's not the only way to do this. There are other passages in Scripture that I think also speak to this, but we're not going to look at those passages today. We're going to look at one passage, and it's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to look at the first 17 verses of this chapter. And this is a powerful chapter, I think, in helping to address what oftentimes can happen, not only here in today's church, evangelical church, but what also happened in the early church. Okay? And this is what I think is so funny. And I heard another pastor say this, and I want to say this as well, because I think this is so true. There are so many times, how many of us ever said, oh, I just, I just wish the church would be just like the early church? I just wish we could just be like the early church, as though that was good. And where we are today is not so good. Let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, a lot of the issues that we talk about today and that we experience today, the early church experienced. So be careful what you ask for. In many ways, we got it right? So let's take a look at how the Apostle Paul addresses this, I believe, very problem of fighting against or, or, or resisting a personality-driven church. And he does, I think, three things that I think we can also do today to help us not run that risk. And the first one we could do is this, call out the problem. Call it out. Say what it is. Hey, we're a personality-driven church. This isn't good. Take a look at what Paul says here. Remember, he is writing to the church in Corinth, a young church that he planted, a young church that he spent over a year and a half there with these people, discipling these people, helping these people grow in Jesus Christ. And he plants this church, and now they experience all sorts of problems. And let me just say this. If the Apostle Paul couldn't even plant a church without problems, don't ever think that we can plant a church that won't have any problems either. If the Apostle Paul struggled with it, we're going to struggle with it. Okay? And by the way, that shouldn't dissuade us. That should encourage us. All right? That should encourage us. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church, and he says the following. He says, And I, brothers and sisters, and I love this, he is speaking to everyone in this church could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. And he says this, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to consume it. But even now, you are not yet able. In other words, Paul is saying to them, listen, y'all, I have so much more I want to share with you. But you know what? You are fleshly. I love that word, fleshly. You are fleshly. And um, all of a sudden now, what we realize is that what Paul is referring to here is that we are still stuck in our carnal bodies. We are still just trying to figure out and living into our natural urges and desires that our body brings. So that's what we are just, that's what we are looking at here. That's what Paul is referring to. You are still stuck in just kind of looking at that fleshly, carnal living and you haven't quite yet been able to kind of get away from that at all 
And so what, we, what Paul is saying is, until you can do that, I cannot give you, I cannot give you more. It's just really hard. I cannot give you more. And yet he says this, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to consume it. And yet you still are not able to consume it. By the way, FYI, I think this is a perfect picture of, of who we are as human beings. I think I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, I think it's true, because I read it. Um, and I know it has to be true, because I don't read false stuff. Um, that I think we are the only ones, in terms of mammals, who continue to drink milk in adult years. I think every other mammal drinks milk when they are infants and, and, and and like in the younger stages, and then after that, they give up milk. They don't need it anymore. It's time to move on to solid food. But we as human beings still drink milk, right? I mean, that's really interesting. How many of us still love a good bowl of cereal, right? Oh, can I, confession time, brothers and sisters, I love cereal. I really did. And I say that in the past tense because I haven't had a bowl of cereal in 10 years. I know, it's okay. You don't have to pray for me. I'm good. I'm good. Um, one of my favorite cereals was Golden Graham's right? Yeah, yeah. Golden Grahams was just fantastic. Um, what happened, you might ask? Um, Dan, 10 years ago, I grew up. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, I gave it up. I just realized that wasn't something that was... I, I'd rather spend my calories on ice cream. <laughs> that, that's all. I'm just, I'm just being... But, but you know, it's interesting that Paul uses this analogy because I think that's interesting for us that even as human beings, even now, we, we oftentimes revert back to things that maybe we should move past. And sometimes we don't move past those things. And if we don't move past those things, we may not be, to, be able to experience other things that are waiting for us to be experienced or to learn or to realize. That may be true in the Christian faith. That oftentimes we, we limit ourselves, whether we realize it or not, to only a certain level, and we don't want to go any further. For a variety of reasons, we don't want to go any further. Boy, we are just having bangs and all sorts of stuff today, aren't we? Um, I tell you, we're okay. Um, and so all of a sudden now, we can oftentimes limit ourselves. And this is what was happening in this church here. They were limiting themselves, and as a result, Paul could only continue to give them the basics after seven plus years. It's like, guys, we, come on. We've got to move forward here, okay? And yet here's what he does. And he says this. I, I been, I've been giving you milk instead of solid food. Well, guess what? I'm giving you some solid food right now. It's time for you to get some solid food. And this is what he says. And here's why they've been held back. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not are you not fleshly and are you not walking like ordinary people? There was jealousy and strife within their body. And as a result, Paul says, I can't teach you more. And yet here I am, I'm going to teach you more. But here's the reason why it was showing itself in jealousy and strife. Here's what was going on. Verse four, for when one person says, I am with Paul and another, I am with Apollos, are you not ordinary people? In other words, what began to happen in this church is there began to have fractions developing and there was a fraction that was team paul and there was a fraction that was team apollos 
And there was another fraction which Paul does not mention, but it, wasn't, it was there, and that was Team Peter. Peter was also in Corinth, okay? But there were fractions. There were people who were fractioning off and saying, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm Team Paul. Paul planted this church. Paul taught me to love Jesus and to know Jesus, so I am definitely Team Paul. And then there were others that, oh, no, 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 I'm Team Apollos. Oh, no, Apollos, oh, when he, when he preaches, it's as though an angel himself is speaking through him. It is unbelievable how well he preaches. And by the way, he's pretty good looking too. Don't you agree? <laughs> Paul, not so much. And then Peter. Oh, Peter, are you kidding me? Jesus said to Peter, it is on you that I will build my church. He's the rock. And I don't know about you, but I'm placing my faith on the rock. And by the way, he's the head honcho. He's the leader of leaders. He is the chief among the apostles. I am all team Peter. And just in case, church, we might be tempted to think, oh, I'm glad I'm not that way. <laughs> be careful. Be careful. We also, whether we realize it or not, section ourselves off. Fraction and, and go on and I'm team this or I'm team that or whatever else, right? I mean, it just happens. It really does. How many of you, and don't raise your hands or answer this out loud unless you really want to, right? I mean, seriously. If you think in this church, there are people who might be Team Dan, who might be Team Wheezy, or might be Team Eric. Or might be Team whoever else any of those three people is preaching I'm Team for. Right? I mean, think about it. We do the same thing. It happens in churches, evangelical churches, all over the place. That there are people, pastors, preachers, who are absolutely have groupies, for lack of a better word. That when they're preaching, they're in church. And when they're not preaching, they're not in church. Right? And all of that stuff. It is, it is, just, it is just nature, human nature for us to do that. And so... This is what was happening, is they were, they were all of a sudden kind of going out and splitting themselves up over whom they liked the most. And Paul calls it out. He says, this is a problem, church. This should not be. And he calls it out for what it really is. It's jealousy, it's strife, it's awful, and it should never be tolerated. He calls out the problem. And let me just say this, church. we got to call out the problem. We can easily be, and we may even be, a personality-driven church. And let me just say this. A personality-driven church is, in many ways, a problem-oriented church. You want to find why a church may have a lot of problems? The chances are it might be because it's personality-driven. Paul calls it out. He says it publicly, what everyone knows privately. And it's wrong. He calls it out. We need to call it out. And then he goes on and he says this, and this is the second thing we need to do. He calls out the problem first, and then secondly he says this, keep, he, he does this, he keeps leaders in their proper place. He keeps leaders in their proper place. Listen to what he says here in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds it. In other words, what Paul does here is he says, hey, by the way, church, Paul, myself, and Apollos, we're nothing but servants. That's all we are. Right? Paul may have planted... Apollos may have watered, but God is the one who makes it grow. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can plant and water all you want, right? It doesn't guarantee that something's going to grow, does it? We must be heard from some people who tried that before, grew plants or otherwise, right? There is no guarantee. All we can do is plant and water, and we pray, oh, Jesus, may this grow, That's all we can do. There is no guarantee that what we do will result in growth. It is completely up to God. And so what Paul does, he says, listen, Apollos and I, we're just servants. All right? We're just servants. Paul says, I came in and laid a foundation. And by the foundation that Paul laid was not on him, but was on Jesus Christ. And now Apollos is building on that foundation. That's all he's doing. And by the way, we're only here because Paul says this. We're only here because God allows us to be here. That's it. We only get to do this because God allowed us to do this. Think about that. You and I might be tempted to think the reason why we get to do the things we do is because we're gifted to do them. No. Just because someone may be gifted at preaching doesn't give them the right to be a preacher. Just because someone may be gifted in teaching doesn't give them the right to be a teacher. Just because someone is gifted in leadership doesn't give them the right to lead in a church. Just because someone may be gifted in administration doesn't give them the right to be administrators. The church, and I mean the big C church, is littered with people who are no longer exercising the gifts in those churches or in churches in general because they decided to champion their rights over the fact that what they were given was a gift. I have no right to be up here preaching. None. None. At all. The only reason why I'm up here is by the grace of God. He allows it. I am simply a servant. Pastor Eric is simply a servant. Pastor Wheezy is simply a servant. The foundation, by the way, that was laid by Pastor Bill Curtis, who, by the way, it's been a year since he passed away been a year since he passed away i talked to fran a couple of days ago and and you know she was doing her taxes and it's hard she said she's still grieving it's really hard and you know what brothers and sisters i wish that there was a time that we could just say well the grieving stops here it never stops fully it's a beehive it's not a bookend does that make sense and bill curtis laid a foundation in 1977, up here, and the foundation was Jesus Christ. It wasn't Bill Curtis. 
And ever since then, we've had four pastors, I think, total in this church in over the 40-plus years that we've been here. Every pastor since then is building on that foundation. Every single pastor. Bill planted, every single one of us after him are just watering it. The growth is up to God. Does that make sense? So here's, here's how I want you to view me and Pastor Weezy, and Pastor Eric, and any leadership in this church. We are no one special. We are no better than you. We are no more special than you are. We are servants. And by the way, in, in actuality, we are the chief servants. We are the ones who ought to be modeling servanthood. I have no right to command any of you to do whatever it is, any more than you might think I do. And if you ever allow me to have that kind of authority in your life, you and I need to have a conversation. Truly. I am, I am just a servant. Pastor Eric is just a servant. Pastor Weezy is just a servant. By the way, they have no idea I was going to mention them today. <laughs> if they have a problem with it, they can speak now or forever hold their peace. <laughs> they have no problem with it. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, it's, it's a real danger when we place people on pedestals. And I learned this early on when I was in youth group. We had a dynamic youth pastor. He was phenomenal. He, is still, he and I still talk. He's in his 80s now. His son lives in Sedona, I just found out. So he comes through here, and one of these times he's going to hopefully be here. I mean, he had more impact on my life as a youngster going into ministry than as a group of people. He was one of the ones who was just key in that. And I'll never forget the day when he left to go to another church. It was devastating. It was devastating because all that I had known about faith in Jesus was a lot of it, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was through him. And when he left, it was devastating. It was devastating to those who were discipled by him. It was, this, it was devastating to those who had been a part of this youth group and, and we had a large youth group. It was a really fun youth group. It was a really good youth group. And now all of a sudden he was gone. And it was really, really difficult. So difficult that even some of the youth that were a part of this, who were just on fire for Jesus, walked away from the faith. Couldn't deal with it. The problem wasn't him. The problem was us pinning our hopes and our faith and everything else on him. He was pointing us to Jesus and we said, you are him. No. In case you don't know already, I am not Jesus. <laughs> Pastor Eric is not Jesus. Pastor Weezy is not Jesus. We're not Jesus. We just want to point you to him. That's all we want to do. That is our aim up here, is to point you to him. We are nothing. We are nothing. We are just servants. Just pointing you to Jesus. That's who we are. That is our aim. And Paul, I believe, was saying the same thing, and he's saying, guess what? Our proper place, as Paul and Apollos, our proper place is not in God's throne, but rather at the feet of that throne. We are just mere servants. He says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. 
If anyone's work, which he has built on, it remains, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. Right? Oh, just to be sure, anything that myself or any other pastors who are up here in what we're doing, that work is going to be tested. And if it was ever built on a personality or a person other than Jesus, it is going to be burned away. It will not last at all. It will not last. It may last for a little while, but in the long run, it will not last at all. It can take years to build up a reputation and seconds to lose it. If you don't know, if you don't believe what I'm saying. And the same is true here. Anything that is done out of selfish ambition or selfish motives, anything like that that I may do or any other pastor up here may do, that work will be burned away. It will not last at all. It will be burned away. And by the way, the one who, built, who, who did all that will be saved just by the skin of our teeth. Got to give an account. Got to give an account. It's really hard. So keep leaders in their proper place, brothers and sisters. Respect them, but don't idolize them. We are not your saviors. We are not your fathers. We are not your mothers. We are not those people. We are your servants. That's who we are. Keep us in our proper place. And I have no doubt this church will do just that. <laughs> I have complete confidence. <laughs> Here's the last one. Call out the problem, keep leaders in their proper place, and finally embrace your part as God's dwelling place. The last two verses of this are really powerful. Paul asks the following question in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? By the way, do you, that is not singular, that is plural. He is speaking to the jerk, to the church, the church in general. That's what general and church got mixed up there, okay? Hang with me, church. Um, he is speaking plural. He is speaking plural here. By the way, all through this passage, this was in the English language in, in terms of um, placement. This is indicative language. This is not imperative. Indicative is, this is who you are. So Paul is saying, church, you are God's temple. Not the temple, as he says here. You are a temple. Let me just make that very clear, right? Do you not know that you are a temple of God, not the temple? There are many other temples, okay? We are just one of many, but we are a temple, a dwelling place for God himself collectively as people. This is who we are, church. We are God's temple. We are not Dan's temple. We are not Eric's temple. We are not Wheezy's temple. We are not anyone else's temple. We are God's temple. This is his church. This is the foundation on which this church was founded on was on Jesus Christ and no one else. This is his church. And he says this warning, Paul says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. Wow. I could spend a long time just on that alone. If anyone seeks to destroy the church, God will destroy that person. To wreck the church, to divide the church, 
to take the fracture.